Hello, my name is Fran Stoddard. For National Community Planning Month, the Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on hearing how resident engagement can lead to more meaningful, comprehensive plans. In these Heart and Soul Talks, we feature stories and insights from Community Heart and Soul, a community development model that builds stronger, healthier, and more economically vibrant small cities and towns. Today, uh, joining us are three planners with experience in creative, comprehensive plans that involve residents and align vision and actions based on what matters most to residents. I'd like to welcome Jane LaFleur, a heart and soul coach and principal of J.B. LaFleur Consultants of Maine. Welcome, Jane. Hi, Fran. Thank you. Okay, it's great to have you here. We also have uh, Dana Hanley. She is the Community Development Director in Essex, Vermont. Welcome, Dana. Hi, everyone. It's nice to be here. And Angela San uh, Filippo, uh, she is the Long Range Planner in Ellensburg, Washington. Welcome, Angela. Thanks, Fran. Thanks for having me. And before we get on to our guest stories, I'm just going to cover a few quick logistics. Each speaker will offer brief presentations, and then we'll dive into your questions. Thanks to the many who have already sent in a great range of questions with your registration and letting us know where you are with your comp plan. Many uh, folks are just getting started with their plan. Others are updating an older plan. One plan is, quote-unquote, stalled, and I imagine many could relate to that comment. We have over 250 registrants for our call today from across North America and beyond. So we'll be muting our listeners. We have muted everybody um, who, is just, who is a listener uh, to get as clean an audio signal as possible with our guests. In your email is a link to our Google document for note-taking, comments, and questions. Orton's Caitlin Davison will be taking notes that she will proofread and refine after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. You can add your own comments or questions to the document in real time in the edit mode. However, if the edit... Um, the edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, so if you're not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute. We also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference for everybody. You can also tweet us now with your questions or follow along with our Twitter feed at Orton Foundation. In a few days, we'll send links to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with the Google Doc during the call, you can try to re try the refresh icon. That usually uh, takes care of anything. But if you're having other technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at orton.org. So thanks, and on to our guests. So Jane Lafleur provides community development, planning citizen engagement and civic leadership training and education programs throughout Maine and the U.S., including coaching community heart and soul teams through the two-year community development process. Her broad experience includes providing community facilitation, town planning, walkability audits, and placemaking training and other community assessments. Jane received the Professional Planner of the Year Award from the Maine Association of Planners and the New England Northern New England chapter of the American Planning Association in 2015. She's awesome. Welcome, Jane, and go ahead. Hi, friend. Thank you. Um, I've been a town planner for over 30 years now. I've written and collaborated on many comprehensive plans as a town planner, as a consultant, and also assisting with community engagement and developing a community-driven action plan. 
as a result of a heart and soul process. I've seen firsthand the pitfalls of minimal community engagement and using only the required public hearings, the pitfalls of plans written only by consultants or department heads and town committees. But I've also seen successful and meaningful plans that come out of a planning process, a process that works hard to find out what matters most to community members and integrates that into their plan. I guess the three principles that seem to matter most to me is first identifying who's in your community and targeting methods to reach those community members. And in Community Heart and Soul, a community network analysis is a tool to do that. I guess second is using different ways to engage the public rather than just surveys or public meetings. Uh, in Heart and Soul, for instance, we urge people and community members to go to the people rather than asking them to come to your meeting. Uh, attending rotary meetings, going to PTA groups, um, going into a classroom, designing strategies for engagement around the community members rather than asking them to fit your process and on your timeline. And then finally, listening to the hopes and dreams and ideas for the future to find out what people care about and then turning that into action. People are more likely to take action and get involved if they've suggested the idea and they can see something actually happen as a result of their idea. Um, just quickly, two communities that I'll, I'll highlight uh, in Damascotta, Maine, the community heart and soul process resulted in six community heart and soul statements that captured what mattered most to the people in that community. One of those statements was, we value an accessible community. Another was, we value the proximity of nature and culture or living and working locally. And those ideas and those statements could be tied to policies that were recommended in the comp plan. And then finally, in Gardner, Maine, I was invited to assist with pulling out action items that came from the heart and soul story gathering process. And those action items were evaluated by the community as to whether they had a high, low, or medium impact and a high, low, or medium feasibility. And that action plan became an addendum to the comprehensive plan as a community action plan. And it didn't necessarily involve government, but it did allow for the community to help itself in doing the things that were suggested. So it was everything from an outdoor concert series to window boxes on Main Street to a trail system that connected the downtown to a nature area. Um, and those ideas became action items from the community that could become service projects for service organizations or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or even future grant requests. They came from the community bottom up rather than top down. So I'll stop there. Those are just a couple ideas and uh, let someone else do the talking. Thanks. Okay, great, Jane. Thank you so much. Get back to you. So on to Dana Hanley, a professional land use planner who has worked since 2006 for the town of Essex, Vermont, as its community development director. Her background includes administering the Act 250 for the Vermont Environmental Board, also working as the Associate Director of the Vermont Forum on Sprawl and serving as the Planning and Zoning Director for the Town of Shelburne, Vermont. Dana is the past president of the Vermont Planners Association and currently serves on its executive committee. Last year, the Essex Town Plan was awarded the Plan of the Year by the Northern New England Chapter of the American Planning Association. It was beautiful. Thanks for joining us, Dana, and go ahead. My pleasure. So by way of background, um, Essex is a community of about 21,000 people. We're located about eight miles from the state's largest population center, Burlington. 
which is situated on the shores of Lake Champlain. Um, the lake, with its recreational opportunities and impressive views of the high peaks of the Adirondacks, is a major tourism draw, especially from Montreal, which is under two hours away. Boston and the New England coast are three to five hours away. So now you kind of have a picture of where I am. Um, Essex is served by an Amtrak station, has good public transportation, it prides itself in its schools, recreation trails, and social connections. In the latter half of the 20th century, Essex was defined by an IBM semiconductor facility which employed about 8,000 people at its peak. That facility has been sold and the workforce there is dramatically reduced, causing Essex to have to think really creatively about diversifying its economic base. So Essex is growing and changing. As much as it would like to think of itself as a rural, rural suburb dominated by open fields, forest land, sweeping views, and low-profile buildings, the landscaping is changing. And by and large, where, from where I sit, I see resistance to these changes. Regionally, Essex is designated as a sub-regional growth center, but when a, re when a recent conceptual application included two six-story buildings, um, community opposition was swift. Community members do not want to see residential housing springing up all over the rural areas, but yet a rise in the vertical profile of their growth area is threatening too. So what does a planner do? Um, as a professional planner, I understand how an increase in density in our town center would benefit the community by containing sprawl. It can be really hard to get that message to resonate. Um, during planning commission hearings in Essex on development review applications, a common ref refrain from the audience is, I moved here from New Jersey to get away from that. So when it came time to do the 2016 town plan, Heart and Soul had just wrapped up its process here in Essex. The results from its extensively extensive community outreach process were just sitting there ready to be used. Community development staff here had little time or money for this town plan update process. I started thinking about radically changing the way we write town plans, in part to save time and money, but also to make them more readable and user-friendly. Our previous town plans in Essex we're all dense narrative, hard to follow with unprioritized tasks. They were basically unintelligible to the average reader, and even staff didn't pay that much attention to them, to be honest. <laughs> to further my thinking, I convened a group of planners in our county for a summit. The summit was held after work at a downtown Burlington most beloved pub. We all brought our town plans. We stood together and dropped them on the floor at the same time to hear which one made the biggest thud. Essex won. We all vowed to revolution, revolutionize our town plans. Fortified, I set about trimming about 100 pages from the Essex town plan. That was about half the document. At first, it was intimidating. What if I cut out sections that people felt strongly about? 
But after a while, I got into just a, sort of a fearless editing mode, and it became liberating and fun, really fun. I was also fortunate to have a former copy editor on my staff. Um, the great part was that when the plan eventually went through the public review process for the Planning Commission and Select Board, no one really noticed the deletions. Um, it wasn't – no one missed anything that I had cut. I was ready for some pushback on that. Figuring I had to have another hook on the 2016 town plan, I retained the services of a graphic designer. Bringing the town plan to life via color was my favorite part of the whole process. We held a photo and art contest for the plan that was advertised in a panel, picked out their favorite photos and art pieces. The back cover of the town plan is a painting of a little boy fishing, and I used selected colors from that painting for the plan chapters and sidebars. I chose Caribbean colors because my mother loved deep corals and greens and blues. Even those colors pass muster. So far, I was doing pretty well. Um, we put the maps in the, in the plan instead of attaching them as appendices and employed hyperlinks so that digital readers could easily move to other related resources. We had pull quotes on the side of pages to bring community members' voices alive within the document. The last part was community outreach. When would I have the time and resources for that? Never. Then I started thinking, heart and soul. I reread the document that arose from that process and, and a process that I participated in and realized I was holding my miracle in my hands. The community outreach had already been done for me. I started to, ref to refer to the plan as being a heart and soul town plan. Every meeting I was in, I was like, we got to make this a heart and soul town plan. We integrated the Heart and Soul logo, other important components of Heart and Soul, such as the six core community values that emerged, as well as sections entitled Heart and Soul Describes Community Connections, Heart and Soul Describes Local Economy, Heart and Soul Describes Education, Heart and Soul Describes Thoughtful Growth. With that, we are almost finished. Um, the P.S. de la Resistance was creating an action plan as Chapter 1, putting it right up front. No more fumbling through a cumbersome document to figure out what to do. It was all up front. All the departments and town committees weighed in with what they wanted to accomplish in the next five to eight years. I asked them to prioritize their tasks in terms of t time frame, partners, and projected funding sources. Now I call our town plan our North Arrow. We look to it all the time. It's always open on our desks. It's such a great reference, and it's visually, it just makes us happy to see it. Uh, we just created a five-year work plan for the Planning Commission, and it was all there in the action plan. When we go to the Regional Planning Commission in 2021 to report in on the implementation process of our town plan, all we have to do is put, place check marks on the things accomplished 
in the action plan and provide a short sentence or two on the things that haven't. When the 2016 town plan came out, it created a small sensation among planners in Vermont. It looked beautiful. It was bound beautifully. It was so easy to read. Planners from all over the state contacted me for information on how I pulled it off. And as Fran noted, the enthusiasm translated into um, a couple of awards for us. And it's been really exciting for me to take that plan on the road. I love talking about it. It's been really well received in the community, and I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it without heart and soul. Fantastic! Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dana. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just I love how you picked the colors, and it was just uh, terrific. Small <laughs> wonder it won these these awards. So thank you very much for um, getting getting into that kind of detail. Uh, so we'll move on to Angela um, Sanfilippo. She is a long-range planner for the city of Ellensburg, Washington, located in central Washington state um, on the other side of the country. She is spearheading the city's comprehensive plan update and is using the community heart and soul model. Angela has experience working for federal, state, and county governments and is excited to be working in a small town at the local level. So, Angela, why don't you share your stories about plans and heart and soul? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to share um, specifically Ellensburg's story. Um, I moved to Ellensburg just a couple years ago, so it's fairly new to me. So this process was great for me to get involved in my community as well. But just some basic statistics about Ellensburg. Um, as you said, we're located in central Washington, population of just under 20,000 people and located about an hour and 45 minutes southeast from the Seattle area, just to give you guys a little bit of orientation. Um, one county commissioner I used to work with referred to us um, as being within a latte's drive of three and a half million people. So that uh, paints a great picture <laughs> of where we are. Um, we're also home to Central Washington University, um, about 9,700 students that attend university here on campus in Ellensburg. Roughly half the population of Ellensburg um, is made up of that campus. 9% of our population is about 65 years and older, likely to see that growing over the next several years. And then our population also is about 12% um, Hispanic, and that's increased over the last 20 years as well. So where we're at with our comprehensive plan update, we're just about two weeks away from our first public hearing, so this is really the um, required kind of elements of this comprehensive plan update. That will be with our planning commission, and then we're tentatively scheduled for adopting this comprehensive plan by our city council in mid-December. So one of the key additions for us was the heart and soul method, and we began the heart and soul process with our comprehensive plan, so we were working on those in tandem. And some of the key elements for us in using the heart and soul method is it really became our guide for public participation and really focusing on the idea of the heart and soul method of providing opportunities to involve everyone in this process. So our goal starting out was that the community value statements that come out of a heart and soul process would really be our what we've thought of in the past as our vision, but really our guiding principles for our comprehensive plan. Each statement that came out of those community values um, really, um, the goal is to capture a theme or a particular attribute of what matters most to our community members. And then the group of statements that becomes our guiding principles in our plan captures 
what residents hold up as the most important community characteristics. And for us, the first step in doing that and identifying those community values was this community network analysis tool. Um, and I think Jane talked a little bit about that, but the tool to help our community identify who to reach out to and how, and really also to identify segments of the population that have typically been underrepresented. For us um, in our community, these were families with young children, um, the Hispanic population, as well as hearing from some of our youth, and this included um, the university students that are um, a huge part of our community as well, but don't typically get involved in these type of processes. So from our community network analysis, we really had a couple key partnerships and community outreach strategies that I wanted to highlight. One of them was a partnership with Bright Beginnings, which is our local Head Start um, preschool in the area. Um, and our local Head Start uh, Bright Beginnings was able to incorporate um, what matters most conversations, so conversations about what people love and value about Ellensburg and what they'd like to see improved upon into their fall home visits that they do with every family. So one of the things that they were also able to do is that all of their Bright Beginnings staff that work with the family members are bilingual. So they're able to conduct those conversations in both English and Spanish, um, and those conversations are held in the family's home. So one of the key things that came out of our community network analysis tool is how hard it is to involve families with young children because they just have so little time to get involved. So this is something that they're doing already, and it's also in their home, having a conversation that they already kind of were scheduled to have as part of this school effort. And then another thing that came out of um, the community network analysis is that a large number of the Hispanic population in our area are families with young children. So a great way of bridging that and meeting a couple of those different populations that were identified. One of the other things was a partnership with our local middle school and local high school in the area. And this um, lended itself for us to actually get into the classrooms, get into middle school and high school classrooms, and have conversations with students, with the youth in our community. We've got a large youth population, a large number of um, students under the age of 18, and that is growing. Um, we've seen our schools expanding and seen some overcrowding of our schools, but just show this population of families really increasing in our area and wanting to hear from youth and in our community as well. So we were able to get into the classrooms and have conversations with the students um, from their perspective, these same, same questions about what they love and value about the community, what they'd like to see improved upon, what would entice them to stay here or to come back as adults to raise their families, so different different ways of getting at it with, with the youth. Um, and then we also um, had them um, have these conversations with, with their family and friends. So having the conversation with them, getting them comfortable with the topic and the idea, and then asking them to also have these conversations. And the teachers we partnered with were great about incorporating it as a homework assignment for them, so a little bit more motivation for them to actually conduct these conversations and, and bring them back um, as a small write-up um, to share the ideas of their family and friends as well. So that was a great partnership um, with the middle school and the high school students. And then we also um, went to what is called Bite of the Berg. It is the welcoming back of the college students in our area. Um, it's held each fall to welcome students into the community and to um, help to bridge some of the divide between our university and the rest of the community and really show um, some of the university students what our town has to offer. So we were able to have conversations at that event 
um, with um, some of the student, university students as well. So um, really what this became about for us was meeting community members where they already are. We did a number of other events. I just wanted to highlight a few. But really what came out of it is we have really busy, active community members um, who aren't always able to make it to a public meeting for one reason or another or aren't very motivated to do so. So meeting them at the events that they're already going to was really important to reaching out to everybody and involving everybody in this um, community value process. So those community values, as I said, were incorporated into our comprehensive plan. They're part of this update. They became the guiding principles behind our comprehensive plan. And then we also had some brainstorming of action items, brainstorming of how our community values have changed over time and what are the actions that we want to incorporate to achieve the desired condition of those values. And those action items are incorporated into some of the policies that go into our comprehensive plan, our policy document, as well as we have a section of action items for each comprehensive plan topic area um, that helps with the immediate steps to take for implementation. So really it's helpful um, on a staff level um, when we go into the implementation side of this after we get our comprehensive plan adopted, but also great for the community to see their ideas reflected not only in the community values, but also in the action items and the steps that we'll take to implement the plan moving forward. And Fran, I'll go ahead and turn it back to you. Okay, well, with those, the, the three of you, many of these questions here um, have been answered on some level. So um, we're going we're gonna to dig a, a, a little bit deeper because you, you have uh, really answered some of these questions that have come out. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into the Q&A. So thank you all. Um, one of the, a couple of questions came in about creative ideas for encouraging attendance in a community with a, and, and for somebody in Shauna and Montana with volunteer fatigue. Evenings and weekends are busy, they're precious. Um, she wants to know how to make a planning session that feels worth the time sacrifice. And also Ginny from Colorado is, is wondering how do you inspire the community to come together when they're very independent thinking. Um, Jane, are, are there other tips that you might have uh, that we haven't heard yet about um, how to really yeah. Encourage people to to get involved to be to be part of these plans. Yes, um, some of the communities I work with focus on having neighborhood sessions so that you are talking about the neighborhood or the street or the block or the part of the community where those people are from. It's much easier to go out to a potluck dinner and have a follow up session um, that's about them and what they care about. Um, and I, I'm working with a number of communities now that are doing that. Um, also going to places, somebody's already mentioned this, but where people are. Um, one of the communities I'm working with is going, went to the food pantry and set up a little booth and asked people while they're waiting in line to get food, um, you know, what do you love about this community and what would make it a better place? And boy, you get a whole different set of answers than if you were going to other parts of town. So, uh, really targeting your engagement and your outreach to people that are um, that are part of your community and making sure you go deep into the community, not just the the uh, every the voices you hear all the time. Right. Well, and and certainly uh, Diane from New Hampshire and John from Oregon are both interested in how to entice uh, 
those in the community whose voices are not often heard uh, to participate in community dialogues, um, and how to engage people from diverse communities who just don't come out to um, civic events. And Angela, I know you talked about bright beginnings by, with bilingual um, uh, families and families in general. I think that was brilliant to partner with bright beginnings. Uh, Dana, did you have other, other thoughts from ethics about how you engage people from diverse communities? How did, did you guys dig a little bit deeper? Well, I'd say there's no one solution. It's it's not just one thing that you have in your toolbox, as has been previously mentioned. Um, we're doing an update, for example, of our town center master plan right now in Essex, and we are using um, small to medium-sized focus groups. We did a, a community-wide survey that, was web-based and that 400 people responded to and it was over 30 minutes long. So we knew, we know that the people are out there. Um, last night we had a community open house with um, our consulting team. We had plenty of food and um, the, the room was set up in stations with people able to put sticky notes and their thoughts on designs for the future of our town center. So it's a lot of different things. It's no longer just advertise the meeting in the paper and expect people to show up. Right. Food is important, though. We've talked about that in a lot mm -hmm. of different ways. Um, and, and finally, to kind of wrap up this, this piece, um, and uh, Angela, maybe you have some thoughts. Both listeners in New Jersey and Vermont are looking for creative ways and methods to achieve um, not only turnout and engagement, but also to, to solicit feedback and get input. Um, Dana just mentioned uh, having something web-based um, and a survey that was actually 30 minutes long that people people did. Uh, Angela did, or and or Jane, but let's start with um, Angela. Ways of soliciting feedback that we have not heard yet. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of them, and I think. Um, I think as Jane said, it really isn't about one method, and I think this is this highlights the importance of that community network analysis tool and really finding out what works best for your community. Maybe your community listens to the radio station or different demographics mm -hmm. listen to a radio station. Maybe they mm -hmm. don't. So it's really, really about reaching out to um, community members that have been here for a long time or represent different groups, and they have great ideas. I mean, that's where the – Right Beginnings partnership came from is because we had um, their director at our community network analysis, and they said, hey, we have these family visits. We'd love to, you know, partner with you. I wouldn't have known that those were going on. So it's really about getting that community involvement and identifying what's going to work within your community. And I think having a variety of methods, we also did all of the things that we surveyed and went to different events were also available online. So not just having one tool, but a multitude of different ways of reaching out. Online is fairly easy to get up and going at this point and having it there that, you know, there is a contingent of the population that is, that's how they want to share their information. I think that's really important. But having mm -hmm. a variety of different ways for people to be able to do that, I think, is also um, just makes for much better, um, more um, active engagement. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, and I, I know that there's a town in Ohio where 
it was Facebook. It was very clear. That's the way people communicated. And um, uh, in other places, that, that, that was not the case. Okay, we're going to move on to um, how, how do residents start the process of identifying a comp plan and how. This is from uh, Tierra in Pennsylvania. Some of our listeners are very small towns, um, and Jane, you, you deal with a lot of quite small towns who they might not even have a comp plan, but maybe they want one. How do they even start the process of a, of a comp plan and, and hopefully with something like this kind of engagement um, as a foundation of them? Uh, yes. Sure, sure. Um, in most of the states that I've worked in, the comprehensive plan is mandated by the state, and there are topics in the plan that are mandated. Uh, usually there are about 10 of them, everything from population to economy to housing to transportation to public services and on and on and on. So each of those chapters has data that has to be collected, and there aren't usually a lot of people that get into that. So often the, it's, it's staff or a volunteer committee that starts that data collection and distills it for the public so it's interesting and and it really resonates with them. So if, for instance, housing affordability is an issue in your community, the data will show that. But then go right into, well, what are the problems and how can we make this better? And what are, you, you know, what are the, some of the suggested policy changes that could make that, um, help the community address that issue? So again, it gets right, you go right from the data to um, the community's goals, policies, and strategies, and then ideas for action. Um, and so, it, you know, I, I guess, again, it varies by, by community and by state, mm -hmm. but, um, you, you know, the, it all comes down to what matters to community members. Um, some communities aren't going to give a darn about population changes in, in their area, but when it affects jobs or affects, um, uh, you know, growth or taxes, then it, it might resonate a little bit more. So it's all about how that data and that information is uh, provided and how people are asked for their input. Um, and, and I'm a big believer to make making sure that actions are taken by by the community to support what people are suggesting so that it, that it's they see uh, progress being made. Mm-hmm. Great. A number of people were also interested. Uh, one actually just wrote in uh, for Dana. Um, did you put the plan in the heart and soul format, or did the heart and soul planning process had that already been done? And before before you answer, Dana, there were a couple of others. How can um, because I think it was heart and soul had been done as you were, and then you worked on the plan and realized you had this engagement piece. But we also from um, Mimi in Pennsylvania. How um, how does Heart and Soul work with existing um, comp plans? Um, so maybe that's a little bit um, different. Uh, what if your town recently released a cookie cutter comprehensive plan without any community input? How might you use Heart and Soul to inform or modify that plan? Um, also from Texas, incorporating Heart and Soul goals with a comprehensive plan. So, Dana, you certainly, as you were working on your plan, you realized you could use this. How did you incorporate Heart and Soul into your plan, and how would you suggest other people could do that? Well, the fun part of what I did in Essex is we started 
we literally rewrote the whole document. I mean, we kept some good stuff, but we we started it over um, from a content perspective. And I would sit around with staff, and we, literally, we were like, where should we put this heart and soul principle? Where should we put this? Where should we put that? And the heart and soul values and and um, everything that I described before about heart and soul describing thoughtful growth, et cetera, we just started popping it in. and And then we would change it around a little bit. But the bottom line is that the graphic designer created the design. And so we told her where we wanted the heart and soul stuff to go. And then she brought this lovely document to life. And it was it was a really collaborative effort. But Really, all we did was we just looked at this new, we had a blank page, and we said, where do we want the information we learned from Heart and Soul to fit into various chapters? And then we literally wrote it in. Mm. And, and, and another probably... Fran, another... Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. please. Uh, J- Jane here. Another example sure. um, was used in Dan Rascata where... The heart and soul values, the heart and soul statements that came out of it, and there were six. I've mentioned a couple of them so far. Um, those, the town developed an icon for each of those. So the one about nature and culture had a picture of a, a little icon of somebody sitting under a tree reading a book. So that icon could be replicated throughout the plan. Or, and in, in, actually it came from a charrette process, so it was included in the charrette report first, and those items um, could be moved over into the comprehensive plan. And when you start tagging things with an icon, that's, again, it's, it's attractive, it's visual, it's colorful. People see, oh, this is a, this is a suggestion or a recommendation or an action item that has to do with living locally or working locally or nature and culture. So, um, you know, that translation from heart and soul statements two action items in the plan and, and or the implementation section of your comprehensive plan. It's very visual and, and you know I love the suggestions that from Essex because that it's along the same lines. Right. And and makes it so readable and people really get right. it and feel more connected to it. So wonderful. Uh a couple of people are, and two of them are anonymous, um, interestingly enough, and it kind of makes sense, uh, about getting your elected officials kind of on board. So uh, from Montana, how do you convince elected officials to implement and comply with a plan, for one? Uh, uh, another question about what techniques can you use to align city council, statutory mayor, mayoral appointed planning and zoning commission, with community values in planning and implementation, and one that has just come in about governing boards. Uh, we love them, occasionally dislike them, but they uh, ultimately must adopt the plan and champion the future action. Uh, you know, these these are questions that come up about how you really get officials on board. Um, Angela, I think any of you can can take this. Do you want to start us off on how you work um, with your other officials, elected officials, 
to uh, to implement, comply with, support, and push the plan? Yeah, um, I think for us, a big part of this was involving them in our process. So a little bit different because we're in our comprehensive plan update process, but um, we went and we actually involved all of our different um, volunteer commissions as well as our council in the process itself. So um, a lot of them were at some of the different events that we were having. They're volunteering at all of our um, workshops and open houses, um, that kind of thing, specifically our planning commission, but then also incorporating all of our other commissions as well. We have an environmental commission that really helped us with our environmental chapter specifically. We have a utility advisory committee. They were helpful with our capital facilities and utilities, and just going to them and involving them in the process I think is huge and getting their buy-in, um, and I think that kind of then sees through in terms of that implementation as well if they're involved in that process or see that, you know, the members were involved in that process in the beginning. It, it provides some more buy-in in terms of implementing and, and carrying that forward. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think, yeah, I, yeah, I, uh, I think that's a great at least start is, is actually having <laughs> them involved <laughs> um, at the get-go. Indeed, Jane, you, yeah. you've dealt with, with, with many different yeah. communities uh, dealing with plans yeah. and their uh, elected officials. Uh, any Any extra tips? Yeah, uh, absolutely what Angela said about involving everyone up front, but also an open process that engages people from in the community, gives the community leaders and decision makers confidence that what's being recommended in the comprehensive plan has the support of the community. So uh, whether it's through a heart and soul process or a very robust public process that reaches deep into the community, um, the community leaders aren't surprised because they, they're attending, they're part of it, they hear from the community and it gives them confidence um, to make decisions that carry out that plan. So, um, you know, if they, for instance, if, if everybody at every meeting is talking about the need for greater um, pedestrian friendly communities and neighborhoods and sidewalks and trails and linkages and all those things, um, it makes sense that the community leaders should start looking at ways to fund that, ways to provide it, ways to to plan it. Um, you know, interestingly, you often hear things you don't expect um, when you go into a food pantry and start talking to folks about uh, what matters most to them. You might hear things like some of the people I'm working with um, about dog people not picking up after their dogs and how that makes their neighborhood unfriendly, unsafe, and not a great place for their kids to play outside. So, you know, when you start listening to the community members, you get much better direction from uh, from them and, and confidence to make the right policy decisions. Mm. Thank you, Jane. So I'm going to, um, just so we get them, these are, these are short, uh, I hope, uh, questions uh, from uh, David in Texas, who um, is a very newly incorporated town within the last four years. So there are two pretty straightforward questions. I'm going to start with Angela about what's the normal timeline for a good comprehensive plan? So our comprehensive plan process has been about a year and a half, but I think that um, two years is probably a little bit safer. It's been it's been a bit of a um, time crunch for us because we're trying to meet our state timelines and requirements. Um, I would say two years is um, kind of a minimum in terms of going through a full comprehensive plan update. 
just as a general reference. Great. And then, um, Dana, how often does a comprehensive plan need to be revisited or and or amended? Is that just state statute, or what is a good um, – if, if there isn't a state statute, what's, a, what's recommended? Well, the state statute in Vermont recently changed to give towns more breathing room to focus on implementation. By statute, we used to have to update our town plans every five years, and now it's gone to eight. And planners across the state were overjoyed because it gave us more time to actually do the things that our town plan tells us to do. And I think that um, the the beauty of that also is that, well, first there was a controversy. Some people were against it, including some of in the environmental voices in Vermont, saying, well, if you give if you give towns, you know, eight or ten years, well, then they just aren't going to plan. So there has to be a requirement um, that they keep on working after they do their town plans. And so into state law now, we have to go to the Regional Planning Commission, which I mentioned earlier, and tell them how we are doing and um, check off the things that we've done. Have a conversation with with staff of the Regional Planning Commission. And so, I don't know how that's going to work because I don't think anyone has done it yet, but I imagine <laughs> it will be a very friendly process. <laughs> um, our, our Regional Planning Commissions and municipalities usually get along, so I can't imagine any anyone hammering on us, but we'll see. So, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's different for places about being revised and amended. It sounds like you certainly try to keep it alive. Um, and, and actually, there are two questions that, that kind of um, are around that. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at them and then look to Jane to um, to start on this. But uh, Phil from Indiana wants suggestions about how to continue participation beyond the comprehensive planning process and into an effort of updating zoning codes, or in his case, the UDO or the Univo- Unified Development Ordinance phase. Um, uh, so we're we're not sure if any heart and soul towns have really created a unified development code, but I think Cortez used heart and soul to do a code update. And Jane, um, I know you've worked with towns that have done code updates and wondering how engagement and, and heart and soul has, has influenced code updates and kind of keeping, um, keeping the plan alive through the next process that a town might go through. Yeah, so um, comprehensive plans are often uh, vague or they're higher level policy suggestions. And uh, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because it allows you to gingerly get into that topic. Um, but And it opens the door for the community to legislatively or policy-wise carry out something. An example is if a community says we want to be an accessible community with walkability and bicycle routes and easy pedestrian access to places in our community, you could then carry that suggestion in your comprehensive plan out to, well, therefore we need to require every new development to have sidewalks. And some communities might do that. 
The devil's in the details, though. And if you are building a suburban community and it and there's not much traffic in this cul-de-sac neighborhood, it doesn't necessarily mean that neighborhood should have sidewalks. It just doesn't make sense. Or if you're having a you know two-lot subdivision down a country road that's dirt, sidewalks don't make sense. So the devil's always in the details. And um, you know what I think has to happen is you have to get as specific as you can with recommendations that come from the neighborhoods or come from parts of town or come from public meetings, and then you end up testing it with your codes and ordinances. And uh, a lot of towns I work with have to have town meeting approval to uh, not only approve the comprehensive plan, but have to approve the, the codes and ordinance, any codes and ordinance changes. So uh, it's not as though it's just the city council that, you know, majority of five or seven people vote for something. The whole community gets to vote on it. Um, and that's the that's where the rubber hits the road. Um, so testing those ideas as much as you can um, is is the way to go. Um, I'm not I haven't worked on a unified development code, um, but again, translating the ideas from your comprehensive plan or from heart and soul directly into your ordinances is 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 pretty important if if you want to figure that out because a lot of the things that come out from again, from heart and soul, are policy changes and regulatory changes. They can be. They don't have to be. And, and you know, a lot of things from heart and soul can be community-driven recommendations that volunteer groups do as well. So it's not always codes that are changed. Hmm. Thank you, Jane. Um, a similar uh, sort of extension on that is from David in Pennsylvania who asked, how do you keep a plan vital um, and used as a reference long after adoption. Um, and Dana, you, you said you refer to your plan all the time. We do. Um, it, for example, is guiding the work that we're doing on revisioning the town's primary growth area. And because that was our number one priority, we just started doing it, and I've just finished, as I mentioned before, this proposed five-year work plan for the Planning Commission, and we just ticked off all of the priority items that we could possibly fit into five years. And I, I if I might, I would like to say just something about cost, because there are probably participants who are wondering, what does it cost to do a really splashy town plan and mm -hmm. hire a graphic designer? They're probably thinking, oh, well, we could never do that. Um, and I'd just like to add that in Vermont, if you want a, um, a comprehensive town plan update done by a professional planning consultant or team, it is about $100,000 from the ground up. In essence, we did our town plan for $14,000. So wow. it doesn't necessarily cost a lot to make a great town plan. Um, mm -hmm. We, we well, heart and soul did a lot of the community outreach, of course, which is the expensive side of town plans. But we also, we just did a statistical update with the regional plan and, 
printing and binding, you know, that was about $5,000. Um, it was really nicely bound. And the graphic designer was a little over 6000 And then the Regional Planning Commission helped us with the statistical update. So don't be afraid to um, to do something creative and fun because you think it might be too costly because it can be done. Yeah, and then everybody actually reads it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Maura from Ohio asks a really interesting question, which is I'm interested to hear how history is incorporated into planning efforts. And I always think of New England as having a, a, a longer history than Washington, but I'm going to start with Angela, um, but Dana or Jane might, might pipe in. Um, Angela, do you feel that history is incorporated into planning efforts on some level? Do you, do you look back to know where you're going? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely look back. And, and I did share a little bit of statistics just about our recent history. So increasing in different demographics and that kind of thing over time is certainly very, very relevant as you move forward. Part of it, how to reach out to people, that's going to change. Um, you know, looking at our um, little bit of our aging population, kind of these ideas that our population that's 65 years and older is going to be continuing to increase, increases in young families, how that affects planning efforts, all of that very, very relevant in terms of recent history, looking back over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, but also um, our history in this area, we have a very rich um, indigenous population history and a rich history with uh, fair and rodeo in our community, and that all is incorporated in our um, a lot of our character of our community, you see that in the character of the community. I think it's important. That's one of the big things that came out of our community values is really identifying um, so much people identify so much individually with the character of our community. It's a community that people spend generations in. Um, mm. And, you know, you're you're here for 20 years, 30 years, and, and you're not a local. Um, so, <laughs> so carrying that <laughs> forward and really understanding how um, to maintain that character um, as we plan and as we grow, because we are growing pretty rapidly um, with some of the influence from the Puget Sound region in the Seattle area. Um, but how we maintain that and how we plan for maintaining some of that character as we move forward is, is definitely really important. And we have kind of a community profile section of our comprehensive plan, and that goes through some of the history um, not just the statistics, but some of the history over um, how Ellensburg was sort of um, has evolved over time and some of these different populations and things that have um, lended to that character in our community. Well, terrific. I think and I, it feels like that really covers how history is incorporated into planning efforts. I think you really covered it. Um, one last question before we get to the last question, which was is getting people to go right away. We, we got from Mary on Twitter, and she asked, how do we disseminate information to groups in a community that feel disconnected and don't want to engage? So in other words, how do you get these plans, this information out to people? Um, how, do you, how do you even um, begin to do that? Jane, just uh, a thought on how, how do you get the information out that people will actually check it out? Yeah, again, you have to be as creative as you are in collecting information from people. Um, I've seen communities uh, give out a coupon for an ice cream cone if people stopped in and 
gave some feedback on some of the material that was um, presented. Um, you know, blanketing the airways with, with tidbits of information from your plan, whether it's through Facebook or through a community listserv. Um, a lot of my communities now have um, annual, uh, oh, sorry, weekly emails that go out to anybody who wants to receive them. So you, uh, the community member doesn't have to go to a website to find information. Instead, the information comes to them. So it might be a report from a department head or a report from a city manager or town manager or select board. So they see what's going out and what's, you know, what's maybe, you know, a, a snippet from a comprehensive plan chapter. Um, just getting it out there as creatively as, as you are collecting it. Fantastic. I think you asked, you, you really answered this, this last question about engaging residents in their comprehensive plans. Uh, what would you add for that? You know, how do you, how do you get like a first step to get people um, engaged in their comprehensive plan? Dana? Well, we use social media a lot here in Essex. Um, it's, we use something called Front Porch Forum for people that aren't familiar with that, which is probably everyone um, we have <laughs> here in Vermont the the cent the Vermont Council on Rural Development and others developed this um, this platform which hooks neighborhoods up to each other and your town is divided into various neighborhoods depending on the population etc and we talk with a lot of people on Front Porch Forum, and they talk back. And I don't know what I would do without that tool. It's fabulous. Uh, we also use um, Facebook a little bit, although no one on our staff really wants to babysit Facebook too much. Um, and, you know, I, I will say that one of the funniest things I read in the history of Essex is that when I was deleting a lot of it from the town plan, because I figured we didn't really need to go back in depth to Essex's deep history. I wanted it to be a really forward, forward-looking document. I, I read that um, in the 1700s, the way people announced public meetings, such as select boards, was to nail a paper notice on a big tree in the middle of our town center. And I always wonder if they got, they end up getting more people than sometimes we do. Uh, we, <laughs> we, do we use social media. We use a lot of things. We use our website. Um, we use the paper. We put yeah. big fat notices in the paper, you know, in other more traditional ways. Thank you so much, Dana. And and that list serve. I think there's iNeighbor in some places in in, in uh, the country. There are a number of different things like front porch form that we have here in Vermont. Uh, there are list serves that that serve a, a smaller group or a, a small town or a neighborhood. Um, Angela, uh, your tips for you know, just a first step that a, that a town might take to really engage their residents more in a comprehensive plan or planning Yeah, I, I think to add on to, to what's already been said, um, personal invitations go a really long way 
So in addition to those social media um, and all of these other kind of ways that we communicate, um, we have so many avenues of communication. But if you can identify some key people in your community um, that can help you with this, I think the personal invitations and actually hearing from someone about your comprehensive plan or this heart and soul method um, from someone that you trust, from someone that, you know, is part of your Rotary Club or you go to church with or something like that um, goes an incredibly long way to getting people involved. So if you've got some champions in your community that can do that kind of personal invitations, um, I think that that goes a very, very long way in terms of getting people involved and getting them to care um, why this is important. Terrific. And, and Jane, I, I didn't, you, you kind of were answering two questions at once. If you have a, a final thought, since um, you might have had something else for this last question, but it seems so related to the, the question that came in on, on Twitter about how you engage folks. Yeah, I, I, I won't add anything else. I mean, I, I except to say that use your community network analysis to identify who's in your community and who are the connectors. So while you may not be the person that knows everybody or reaches everybody, you may so know somebody that can get to other folks in the community. And open the door and, and get in, find out how people want to receive information. Is it a, re a flyer? Is it an email? Or is it a personal invitation? And I agree that personal invitation goes the, long, the longest distance because people will respond to people they know. Okay, thank you so much. And by the way, the community network analysis, there's information for that on the, at Orton.org. It's part of the community heart and soul process. It's been brought up a lot today. Uh, we got to most of your questions. If we didn't, please um, help answer some of these questions. Look, look them over. Uh, we love the wisdom of the crowd that's here. Um, there are some links around placemaking. I don't think we got to that, but um, please check out what we have here. Add your answers. Um, uh, and, and possibly a question, and, and we'll see if our guests can get to them. I want to thank uh, Jane LaFleur, great champion of community heart and soul, for being with us today. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. And thanks to Dana Hanley. Thank you for your input and your great stories about ethics. Absolutely. And Angela Sanfilippo, thank you from all the way over in Washington State. It's great to hear your wisdom um, uh, that you have about planning. Thank you so much. This was, this was wonderful. And many thanks to all of you across the United States for, and beyond for joining us today. We hope that you'll also take a moment to fill out our brief survey to help us continue to improve our call series. Look for links to our survey under announcements. Next month, we will turn to transformational philanthropy. On November 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we dive into how philanthropic organizations are looking to create lasting systemic change in the communities they serve. I'd like to also thank the Orton Family Foundation who makes these sessions possible. You can look for a recording of this call uh, sent out to all registrants and post it on our website at www.orton.org within the next couple of days. For the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. Thanks for joining us and have a great day. Bye-bye.